TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Donut Economics, serving the needs of all within the means of the living planet. Kamana Makalani Beamer, Hawaii, and Kate Rayworth, England. Kamana Makalani Beamer is full professor at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. In his teaching and everyday practice, He's uncovering the restorative way in which most people of the Hawaiian Islands interacted with the natural world before colonization by the U.S. From the late 1800s, settlers began by imposing sugar plantations and cattle herds that began the destruction of whole ecosystems. Kate Rayworth, based in Oxford, England, is the author of the book Donut Economics that has been translated into over 20 languages. She is Senior Associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. She wears the label Renegade Economist with pride. Renegades such as Marilyn Waring and the late Eleanor Ostrom and others analyze the malignancies of Western industrial economies. They drive opportunity and wealth into the hands of the 1%, leaving so many in poverty and despair. And the economic growth that makes the 1% richer every year comes at the cost of the overfished and overlogged and drilled and tilled and mined and poisoned earth. Kate Raworth explains why her economic model is designed in three concentric circles, hence the name Donut Economics. Inside the inner circle, she acknowledges the needs of people and wants them met without overshooting the Earth's ecological ceiling. That is shown in the outermost circle. Kate Raworth puts out the challenge that we need to eliminate human deprivation and ecological degradation at the same time. That, she says, is either an overwhelming challenge or an incredible opportunity to remember and return and restore and repair and reinvent. Here's Kate Rayworth. So the idea here is that it's a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. It's just one way we can imagine it. There are many ways. But if you imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of this picture, then the hole in the middle here is a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. It's a shortfall for people's ability to have decent food, healthcare, education, housing, political voice, income, community, shelter, I crowdsourced these 12 social dimensions from the Sustainable Development Goals. And the reason I did that was because it, it, it just affirms that all the governments in the world have already agreed that every person in the world has a claim not to live in the hole in this donut. Whether or not they have income or not, whether or not the market serves their needs, let's start not with the market, but their needs. Everyone must get out of this hole across this social foundation. So we want to get leave no one in the hole, get everyone into a level of resource use where they're leading a life of dignity, opportunity and community. But, and this is a big 21st century but, but as we collectively use Earth's resources to meet these essential needs, 
we may use them carelessly or in ways where we put so much pressure on the life supporting systems of our planetary home that we begin to kick up against this ecological ceiling. This is the point beyond which we actually risk tipping our planetary home out of balance, where we risk causing climate breakdown and acidifying the oceans. We risk creating a hole in the ozone layer and breaking down the fabric of life through biodiversity loss. We risk withdrawing so much water, converting so much land, applying so much fertilizer, chemical and air pollution, that we actually break down the fabric of what makes life work. And these are known as the nine planetary boundaries. First drawn up by a group of around 30 scientists in 2009, they said, we believe these are the nine life supporting systems that together interdependently make life work and hold Earth in this incredible stable and benevolent phase of life she's been in for the last 11,000 years, which could roll and roll for another 30 or 50,000 unless we so carelessly kick ourselves out of it. So putting those together, the goal of the donor is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And you can immediately see, and to me, visuals are very, very important. You can immediately see that the shape of progress has fundamentally changed. There's no infinite growth here. This is about thriving in balance. And if I do it with my hands, it's like staying within the donut. And, and that already just feels like a heartbeat which is a, a, a sense we have deep within our own bodies. And if what we know already about balance in our bodies, if we can take that knowledge of health lies in balance from the human body to the planetary body, we give ourselves a profound metaphor for understanding the shape of progress and health. It's balance, dynamic balance. Absolutely. Thank you, Kate. The boundaries of the planet and, and meeting the needs of of humanity and people. And as you discuss, you know, in your book, you know, it's really that the progress of the linear economy and, and growth, you know, that, that sort of bring us to this point where, where we do have to recognize, right, that there are these limits and, and we have to find ways to redistribute wealth and, and resources. Before we go there, can I ask you a question? Yes. Because when I first drew this diagram, and I became really interested in the power of visuals. And it was because when I showed this to people, people immediately responded. They immediately started using it and talking with more confidence about a new kind of economy. And I was fascinated because none of the words here were new. It's not the words that they were responding to. It was the shape. So we are born pattern spotters. It's why we see creatures in the clouds and, and ghosts in the shadows, and, and we're looking to make pattern all the time. And so it made me ask myself, well, what are the shapes that other cultures have used to represent well-being? When I drew this donut, it connected us to a circular, dynamic, thriving balance. And then I started looking at the symbols from many indigenous cultures. And of course, there were these thriving shapes, think of the Taoist yin yang, think mm. of the Buddhist endless knot or the Celtic double spiral or the Maori takarangi or the koru. It was just so clear that so many of them had this implicit dynamic self-sustaining balance and it was the Western culture that was the utter outlier. Mm. And so I would just love to understand and hear from you where um, traditions from Hawaiian ancestral cultures and images 
how do they connect with these kinds of uh, shapes that I'm talking about? Sure. Yeah. Mahalo, Kate. And I, I appreciated that from your book. Here in Hawaii, I think we do have, we have the pico um, symbol. And a pico is something that we actually have three pico that connect you to your ancestors. One is, is to gods and, and the other pico connects you to the future. And the symbol for a pico is, is usually, it's like a, a belly button <laughs> connects us to our umbilical cord, you know, and, and that's what connects us through life. Um, so I think it, it's definitely thought of in, in, in terms of relationships between the past and, and the future. And um, the word for wealth in Hawaiian, um, in, in some of our work, we recognize is, is wai wai, is, is water, water. So the word for water is wai, <laughs> and the word for wealth is wai wai, water, water. And really what that is suggesting from our, our kupuna, our ancestors, is that wealth should be like, you know, the water cycle and, and should come in patterns. You know, it, it should repeat itself. And, and a person that was wealthy is someone that could distribute water, could feed people um, and, and provide for their community. So I, your insights around the donut and, you know, circular economies has really taken hold in many ways uh, in Hawaii because we recognize our, our ancestral traditions <laughs> Uh, in, in some ways, we're calling our older economy an ancestral circular economy. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a subsistence economy. <laughs> we did more than subsist. We had these circular relationships that we want to build off of. There isn't this linear progress line um, that's, that's about achievement and, and betterment. It is about our relationships with each other, the past and the future. And can I just say that what you just shared about why, um, why, that, that water cycle being a beautiful metaphor for having wealth that you can, I mean, to me, what I'm hearing is you have the capacity to regenerate and change form and change form and, and um, reinvest and it comes back again. And that's what, of course, water is life. And that's what comes back. That's the most beautiful conception of wealth I have ever heard of. In fact, recently I was speaking to somebody who's older and has been very, very successful in their life in Western culture. And he was talking about what it means to be old. And he said from a, a, a very wise view, he said, I realize over life I've been accumulating things. I've accumulated knowledge and opportunities and contacts and possibilities. And at my age, in my 70s, it's now time to compost those and to give back. And that's what I heard from somebody I mean, if he knew, I'm, I'm going to tell him about why, why this idea that it's, it's the giving back because life is regenerative and that's what wealth is. So thank you for the most incredible um, idea. And I'm definitely going to look up the Pico, the belly button. You know, it's, it's been a great, fantastic collaboration to just learn more about circular economies in your work, because I think there is so much insight. The fact that we were on finite islands we don't think of the ocean as boundaries necessarily, but um, you know many people do. And in that instance, Hawaii is the most isolated place really on the planet. And so, what we've kind of found and understood is, you know, the more that we learn about our ancestral traditions and practices and and worldview, um, there are these fundamental insights about living on our planet because. Uh, you know, our canoe people tell us, "Hey, wa'ahimoku." You know, our our island is like a canoe and what we contribute and what we bring on it is, is, is what we survive with. And can I say that, so we're talking about the concept of circular economy. Um, 
but I think it's really important to acknowledge, as you just did, that actually that's, a, that's again, a modern label name given to something that has been practiced by peoples worldwide. Otherwise, they would not have thrived and survived on whether on islands or on lands where the resources are what you're working with. And it's a regenerative economy by design. And I think circular economy is drawing on and learning from and probably not yet learning enough from many, many indigenous cultures, island cultures, where that was a necessity of a way of living and that, and that regenerative practice. So it's fascinating to me if, if there are people now in Hawaii thinking about a circular economy and that wonderful interplay you must be experiencing of ideas that are coming in, new technologies, new possibilities, but how they connect with ideas that have always been here and ideas that are ours and may come from different labels and different names that our grandmothers and great grandparents talked about and how you look at the intersection of both of those. Mm -hmm. how, how, is that, how is that playing out? Yeah, well, with people like you, it's incredibly regenerative and, and positive. Um, and, and I think there's so much growth and seeding that's happening. Um, and, and yet, there is the, the power of, of the old existing system, um, you know, that, that does generate wealth for <laughs> certain sets of our population, but not everyone. And, and that's where, you know, I think change is, is hard. Um, and, and I think we're sort of in the middle of negotiating that here in Hawaii, thinking about what is the direction, you know, are we going to continue on this path or do we have the courage and leadership, you know, to change um, and, and I think that that's, again, where we can draw upon your, your insights and your expertise, Kate. So, you know, like we are doing here, where we're engaging the power systems and structures, we're recognizing, look, there's, there's limits. <laughs> um, growth that doesn't produce value, um, as you talk about, isn't, isn't the direction we want to go in. We, we want value um, for our community and, and we want economic justice, social justice. So how, how is that being achieved, you know, your, your efforts in, through your circular economy lab and other places in the world? What are some of the insights and innovations? Um, you know, is there a benefit for Hawaii to, to try to become a circular economy? You can reflect on some of these. Great. Well, so first of all, let me say that um, for me, it's very important that the concept of the donut economics is something that we've never once um, asked anyone to talk about or use or adopt or recommend it's because what's the point of doing that it's everywhere where it's happening and being taken up is because change makers in a place have seen the ideas and said and those are useful as part of our own journey that looks like a useful set of tools concepts images that we can use in our own context and when people contact us and say we would like to work with it then we say, let's get in touch and we want to connect you with other change makers like yourselves who you can learn with. Because for example, Barbados is engaging with the concept, Curaçao in the, in the Caribbean also is, is engaging. And, and I, I can see plenty of learning of islands learning together. But let me just say that, well, if I come back to the donut briefly, here's the donut, here's where we want to be, but that's not where we are, right? This is where we are. All of the red in this image shows us on the global scale, this is all the billions of people worldwide who are falling short on their essential needs. We want to eliminate all of that red human shortfall, but at the same time, 
we need to come back within these planetary boundaries on climate breakdown, on excessive fertilizer use, excessive land conversion, biodiversity loss, and locally, of course, many places have real pressure on these. So we need to eliminate human deprivation and ecological degradation at the same time. And this hasn't been done before. This has barely on a global scale been tried before. The 20th century was all about eliminating human deprivations. And, and it's turned out that the way a lot of that was done has leaked out into this ecological overshoot. And it's only now that we can start measuring this impact at the global scale that becomes absolutely visible. So we can't use old economic theories or old government policies, old business models. We need new ones of our own times. And that's either an overwhelming challenge for some or an incredible opportunity to remember and return and restore and repair and reinvent. So for me, if we're going to turn this story around, there are two dynamics that we need to profoundly change. And the first one, hosepipe again, the first one is that we've inherited a linear degenerative economy. I call it the hosepipe economy. Stink earth materials in the pipe of production, make them into something we want, use it for a while and throw it away. And that's the linear take, make, use, lose. That is pushing us over planetary boundaries. And that is what we've got to change. We've got to turn that linear economy into what we're talking about, that circular or cyclical one. So that resources aren't used up, they're used again and again and again, far more carefully, collectively, creatively, and slowly. And some people call that a circular economy. I think the bigger name for it is a regenerative economy. That's the the why why that's the cycle going around the water cycle the nutrient cycle but also the 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 food cycle and the material cycle of things that we make we must repair and restore and refurbish and reuse and share so that's the first dynamic but there's another one equally important another toy that i much love we've inherited economies that are tending to drive opportunity and value into the hands of a few i mentioned before that for example in the us after the financial crash around over 90% of the increase in GDP was going to the hands of the 1%. Globally, over the last decade, the number of billionaires has doubled from 1,000 billionaires to 2,000 billionaires. And so we see the rise of a 1% holding all opportunity value concentrated in their hands. And this utterly undermines the ability that regenerative flow between people, it creates a really deeply unequal economy. We need to open that up and create a distributive economy where resources, <laughs> eh, resources are shared far more equitably with all who co-create that opportunity and value. And that turns out to be the whole of society. So those two dynamics from degenerative to regenerative and from divisive to distributive. Now, what that looks like in a particular place is going to vary from place to place and sector to sector and economy to economy. I'm gonna give you one example of each and I would love to hear if you have examples to share of what you see happening in these directions in Hawaii. So in the city of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, the government has uh, decided to create a circular economy of policy where they say, we want to be 100% circular by 2050. Now, no one quite knows what that means yet, but that's like Kennedy saying, we want to get to the moon. We don't know how we're going to get there, but the point is to try and we'll figure it out along the way. But they've also said we want to be 50% circular by 2030. So 50% of the materials that are in use in our city in 2030 should be being reused and refurbished and repurposed again and again. And that's 
on the way. Now that to me is an example through material use, through food waste, through construction, through consumer goods, moving to a circular economy. So there are districts in Amsterdam where all the construction is using material that has a material passport of where it's been or where it can go. So that if those buildings are disassembled, they know where to store those materials and where, how they can be used again. So that's an example of regenerative design. And then for example of distributive design, I'm going to come to a city in the UK in Preston, which is a place where the economy really had declined. And they thought they were going to have a big shopping mall built from big outside investment, come and build a big shopping mall. And then it was cancelled. Nobody was coming to save them. And it was at that moment they realized we're going to have to do this ourselves. Our, our local economy has been stripped out. Most of, the, most of the money that's spent here is going to multinational corporations who hide it in a tax haven and pay tax, who knows where. So they began to use the power of procurement in the local government institutions. They were buying food and clothing and uniforms and books and desks for schools and for hospitals and for the city administration offices themselves, for museums, for universities. And they started to use their purchasing power to buy locally, to buy from employee-owned companies, to buy from minority-owned companies, to buy from cooperatives. And that meant that the money being spent in their city was being reinvested in community and would therefore be retained. And this is known as community wealth building. And is one really nice example of distributive design so that everybody is benefiting from that economic opportunity. So I've shared the, the circular policy in Amsterdam and the community wealth building in Preston as examples of regenerative and distributive design. And I'm sure there's plenty of things, no matter how small or wide in Hawaii, but I would love to hear what you would what you would point to if you were showing me some of these practices in your islands. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for those um, important and, and stunning examples, because I, I think it's that is uh, part of the challenge in making this transition is, um, you know, it's very easy to say, well, how do we get there? <laughs> We've never been there before. <laughs> um, and, you know, having these examples, these tangible examples help us to, to learn and to navigate and to guide together. Um, you know, I think here in our islands, one, and, and there are, you know, numerous examples I think that I could give of, um, but one that really comes to mind, solidifies some of the things that you're saying, um, are, are around this initiative that was actually started by a mentor of mine, uh, Neil Hannes, who's called Aina Ulu. And um, he had this insight where, you know, um, this particular Kamehameha Schools, which is a, a large landowner, it, it inherited the lands of a Hawaiian princess, um, and she left it for the education of future Hawaiian youth, you know, held these lands throughout Hawaii. And, you know, what he did was, there was a period where it was, it was all about economic gain and opportunity. And so Kamehameha Schools had developed their lands, they actually filled in some of these fish ponds that I had mentioned. And uh, when he arrived in the organization, he said, well, you know, there's got to be more going on here than um, we're going to lose our ancestral practices and traditions to make a buck. And, and he started to think about, you know, these multiple returns. And he said, look, we could use this site. It might not be the best place for making a bunch of money if we're going to lose our culture. But what if we restore a fish pond and we educate our kids? You know, what if we reassert our cultural traditions at the same time as we're learning science, uh, marine science in a fish pond and studying climate change. And, and so, you know, he, he and others, you know, helped to invest and, and 
champion uh, Hawaiian leadership around my generation. And, and so when you go around Hawaii today, I, I, I'm incredibly inspired by my peers, um, people that are out there on the aina that are doing some of this work. And you know, when you, when you think about it, that those collective sets of returns are so much more than just economic. Um, they're providing, people are eating from the fish ponds and feeding themselves. But um, what you can't gauge is, is that next generation that has learned you know, from these places and, and understood these insights and what are the kinds of innovations that they're going to achieve. And there's this incredible opportunity and resilience all across our islands. But I think if you're looking at it through that old economic model, you, you might not see its worth. You might not quite get it. <laughs> and this is where you know, your, your insights around you know, donut economics and, and sharing these other insights and what's happening in other places is just incredibly informative and powerful. And this takes me right back to the beginning of our conversation where I mentioned Simon Kuznets, who in the 1930s was asked to come up with one number to measure the output of the US economy. And he did. And, and, and named all the caveats of what it was missing. It, it, didn't, it didn't take account of the unpaid caring work of parents, it, the value created in community. And it counted the value of timber cut down, but not the loss of the value of the forest. I really believe that if Simon Kuznets was alive today and understood what we now understand about our profound dependence upon living systems of the earth, because Western society has been late in waking up to this, and could see the data that's available today we don't need to add everything up in dollar signs we can measure earth's breathing we can see the carbon dioxide coming and going through the years and see her breath in and breath out and of course the measurements in hawaii have been incredibly important towards that we can see the concentrations increasing we can measure the acidity of the oceans we can measure the health of our ecosystems i profoundly believe that simon kuznet said wait what why would you want to add it up into one number? Let's use a dashboard. And the donut is one kind of dashboard that you can precisely use to that. So if you were to bring the project of reopening up uh, the fish ponds, there are so many values that you just spoke to that are created here in terms of health and education and connection and, and understanding, as well as ecological values that are created when we restore those ecosystems, that they don't show up in that one number. So I think ours is the century of data. I think we are going to have the advantage that for, for decades, GDP has been the thing where economists have put so much time and effort into measuring it quarter on quarter on quarter, and it's reported in the news. But now we have data almost in real time about natural and social metrics, measuring and, and listening to planet Earth in her own metrics. Why would you flatten those into a number with a dollar sign in the front of it? We can understand so much more richly. I mean, if I show you this picture and tell you this is the state of humanity, it's so much richer than if I said we were trillions of dollars in debt, that it, it's flat. It doesn't mean anything. This. This tells us. So I really think there's an amazing new project of these multi-metrics and, and the richness of what you just described can be captured and understood, or at least experienced through those. Mm, fantastic. So we'll make it happen, Kate, one day when, when things are right. You know, please come to our islands and, and visit um, and you know, meet some of our incredible community leaders. That was Kamana Michaelani Beamer, full professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa, inviting Kate Wayworth for a visit to the islands. 
Kate Rayworth is Senior Associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. Her book, Donut Economics, has been translated into over 20 languages. She and Kamana Makalani Bima had a one-hour conversation at the 16th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival on October 7, 2021. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.